The sinless Son of God who came as the embodiment of love and mercy and compassion while His hands are tied and His eyes are black and He bleeds from His mouth and from His ears and from His nose, He now has spit on His face. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God to tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he puts Jesus under oath. Swear by God, are you God? Which is like saying, swear by yourself, are you God? Can you imagine what's going through Jesus' head? These accusations. The truth is being trampled on so blatantly. These accusations are so ridiculous. And then the high priest says, Swear by the living God. And Jesus, maybe He so much just wants to say, I am. And I swear by myself that I am. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now that was Jesus' affirmation. Back in verse 25 of the same chapter, you remember the interchange with Judas? Everybody's saying, is it me that's going to, that's going to betray you? And then Judas says, is it me? And Jesus says the exact same words, you have said so. So there we see the same thing. It's an affirmation. What you said is just right. Here's the same affirmation. What you said is correct. And you just said, are you the son of God? Are you the son of the living God? Are you the Christ? What you have said is correct. This is Jesus' first clear affirmation of His deity. Jesus, His entire ministry, has danced around it. He has skated right up to the edge of it so many times and always stopped short of a clear, unequivocated declaration of His divinity. He has called Himself the Son of Man, And we know what he meant. He has let himself be called the son of David. And we know what that meant. He has referred to himself as the cornerstone that the builders rejected. He has talked about building his church. He has talked about before Abraham was, I am. He said it in every way that he could say it without just flat out saying it. Even in Samaria, when the Samaritan woman at the well asks him and says, when the Christ comes, he will teach us all things. And Jesus says, the one of whom you speak is the one speaking to you. That's pretty clear and that's pretty plain, but that was in Samaria. If the Jewish Messiah is going to declare himself to be the Messiah, he needs to do it in Israel, not Samaria. So Jesus has done everything except just openly say, I am the Christ. Here's where he says it. Here's where he declares it. What you have said is right. And you will then see the, at the, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heavens and of the heavens and the high priest tore his robes. Never mind the Old Testament injunction found twice in Leviticus that says the high priest is never to tear his robes. But nevertheless, he has this display of grief when in reality the high priest is elated. This was what he wanted. He just got it. Bingo. Bingo. We just got it. 
So he's elated, but he has this display of grief. He tears his clothes, which in reality, historians tell us that the priest would have what they would call tearing robes. Tearing robes were robes that had been torn and carefully sewn back together with very fragile thread so that they could easily tear again. They were called tearing robes. And when you knew that you were going to have an occasion to tear your robes, you would wear your tearing robe so that you wouldn't tear your good clothes. So the high priest, in spite of the fact that the Old Testament said the high priest is never to tear his robes, he tears his robes in this display of grief, which is really happiness and relief. The high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? What further witnesses do we need? Maybe the ones that Scripture says you need? Like the two or three? Like your own Mishnah says, no one can indict themselves. What further witnesses do we need? Oh, you mean the Sanhedrin are going to be the witnesses? You mean the judges are now the witnesses? That's convenient. You see how at every step, at every possible avenue, this is the greatest travesty of justice. The Son of Man, the Holy One of God, the most innocent man to ever live, stands in the most perverted, distorted, unjust trial that we can imagine. Not just some rules are broken, every rule is broken. You know, when you feel like you've been treated unjustly, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. There's no one treated more unjustly than Him. He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard His blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Now we'll go away and fast for three days and come back. Nope. (laughs) They're going to carry out the sentence immediately in contradiction to their own law, to their own, to their own court system. He deserves death. Mark tells us that the vote was unanimous, which again should have meant that he was immediately acquitted according to their own code. It was unanimous, but then Luke tells us in Luke 23 that there was at least one who didn't agree. That was Joseph of Arimathea, the one, the, the one of the Sanhedrin who will bury Jesus' body. Luke says he wasn't in agreement, which means that they so carefully didn't wake him up and bring him in. I guess they knew that he wasn't a reliable judge. He couldn't be counted on to give the right verdict because they seemed to have gone and woken up the 23 that would give them the verdict that they, that they wanted. So they say he deserves death. Then they spit in his face. Spitting in the face is the universal way to give maximum insult. There's, there's not a culture, north, south, east, or west, Africa, Asia, north, south America, there's not a culture anywhere that doesn't get that and get it loud and clear. Spitting in the face is as insulting and degrading as you can get. So the Son of God, hands still bound, unable to reach up and wipe the spit off of his face, draining down his cheeks, 
the sinless Son of God who came as the embodiment of love and mercy and compassion, the one who came to give his very life and soul to save while his hands are tied and his eyes are black and he bleeds from his mouth and from his ears and from his nose, he now has spit on his face. So begins the mocking and the insulting of God. Such extreme injustice that our Lord is enduring. Such extreme hatred. That's one of the themes, I think, that all the gospel writers want us to see loud and clear. Such extreme injustice and such extreme hatred. Isaiah wasn't kidding when Isaiah said that he was despised by men. Their despicable attitude toward Jesus is just, it knows no bounds, it knows no limit. They they are filled with such hatred for this man. So they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So let the games begin. Let the entertainment begin. Luke tells us that the ones who do this are the ones who bound Jesus. They're the temple guards, the temple police. The Sanhedrin aren't doing this. They're, they got what they wanted and they left. They're going to have to reconvene again in order to make this official. But they're, they've got what they wanted now. So they let the palace guards have their own sort of fun. And they begin beating up on Jesus. They blindfold him and they're hitting him saying through their laughs, tell us, who was that? You are the Christ. You know all things. Who was that that hit you? When in all reality, Jesus not only knew who hit him, but he knew everything about who hit him. And he had known everything about who hit him from before the world began. In reality, Jesus knew their deepest fears, their their greatest anxieties. He knew their greatest hopes. He knew their greatest embarrassments. Think of what Jesus could have said. Oh, I'll tell you who hit me. And let me tell you more about who he just hit me. Let me tell you about what he did last night. Let me tell you about this thing that he's obsessed over. Let me tell you about this thing in his past. He remained silent. The one who knew all things. And they mock him to say, well, whose hand was that? Whose fist was that one? The mocking, the injustice. He was truly despised. And then lastly, verse 69, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said to him, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. And we'll stop there. What's taking place simultaneously is, of course, the story of Peter's denial. All the Gospel writers go back and forth between Peter and the trial, which is really interesting. 
Why do all the gospel writers do that? Why do they sort of go back and forth between what's happening with Peter in the courtyard and what's happening with Jesus who's on trial? Well, you might say, well, because they're happening, these things are happening simultaneously, and they are. But there's other things that happen in the scripture simultaneously, and, and nowhere else do they do this sort of back and forth sort of narration like. So why are the God, all of them, why are the gospel writers going back and forth between Peter and Jesus? Peter and Jesus, Peter and Jesus. I think it's because of this. I think it's to show Jesus' suffering. Because you see, Jesus was suffering in multiple ways. This is his night of suffering. He, of course, is suffering physically from the slaps, the blows, the bleeding, the, all those things. And that's, that tends to be what we really think of when we think of Jesus' suffering, is this physical suffering. And yes, he's suffering in that way, but that is the least of the ways in which Jesus is suffering. He's also suffering because the one who is truth is having to watch truth trampled under the feet of such despicable people. Imagine the heavenly high priest standing before Marlon Brando and having the truth, the eternal truth of God trodden under such wicked feet. How that must have hurt the one who says, I am truth. How he must have suffered to stay silent, to hear the truth trampled. But there's a third way, and this is, this is, I think, the greatest way that Jesus is suffering in these moments. He will suffer more on the cross when he's made to be sin. But in these moments, I think Jesus' greatest suffering is his rejection. And that's why the gospel writers are back and forth between Jesus and Peter. Jesus and Peter. Jesus is suffering from their blows. Jesus is suffering from Peter. Jesus is suffering from the truth being trampled. Jesus is suffering from Peter. He's suffering from his own who are rejecting him in those moments. In those very moments, his own are rejecting him. And they had to. Jesus had to be alone. Jesus could not do this with anyone at his side. He could not do it with anyone showing any support for him. He had to be all alone. He had to have his own people reject him. That, I think, is what Isaiah means in Isaiah 53 and verse 7 when Isaiah says he was rejected by men. I don't think Isaiah only means men who didn't believe in him. I think Isaiah also means men who did believe in him. He was rejected by all. And that was probably his greatest suffering. And those hours of the wee morning, as he knows, and then there's that one time where he even sees Peter, and he hears the rooster crow, and he knows he's all alone. He has to do this all alone. He was despised, and he was truly rejected by men. The persistent silence before the accusations, the extreme injustice, which teaches us that in our most unjust moments, Jesus has been there and Jesus knows. 
the extreme hatred shown towards him. Jesus has told his disciples earlier, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Now, Jesus is showing us they could not possibly hate you more than they hate me. 